Also, just a side note, we'd like to apologize if there's any distracting noises in the background. There was construction next door to the studio, so and we didn't want to stop during the recording. I'm Stephen Becker. I have worked for the judicial branch of the government. I have worked for the legislative branch of the government, but I have spent my entire life being a wannabe cowboy. I'm Beth White. I spent my career in criminal justice and now currently am a full-time mom and full-time podcast enthusiast. And this is Cleared. I think on this episode before, uh, Beth introduces us to our featured exoneree. Um, there's a, I'm going to take a few minutes to do the news, news bulletins. Um, and the reason for this is because I want to focus on the last two weeks of, of uh, November. I've mentioned in earlier broadcasts, I always like it when this issue of exoneration uh rises to the level of uh, mainstream media headlines. And my goodness, we had it the last part of November. Um, On November 17, two men that had been convicted of assassinating Malcolm X were exonerated 55 years after the crime. The court hearing, the exoneration hearing in court, revealed that at the trial, the FBI failed to disclose numerous documents that indicated guilt of someone else. And we'll discuss, uh, that has to do with a Supreme Court decision called Brady. That may come up in our broadcast. 50 years. Anyway, they've... That's, that's older than the internet. <laughs> that is a long time. It's 55 years. Okay, that's even older than older than the internet. The other... Um, okay, so the FBI failed to disclose uh, these documents that uh, pointed the finger at someone else. They also failed to disclose that an undercover FBI agent was involved, was a principal um, involved in the case, and no one knew he was an FBI agent that was undercover. And then they failed to disclose that many of the prosecutor's witnesses at their trial were FBI informants. So when you wonder what leads to wrongly convicted, uh, it oftentimes, very oftentimes, is due to conduct of law enforcement. Then on November 22, the Groveland Four is what they uh, came to be called were posthumously exonerated for a conviction of rape that occurred 72 years ago. And clearly, if that case is, has got some bizarre facts in it that uh, 
can be very unsettling. So, so um, what led to this? What led to their exoneration? They still, there was still evidence of, uh, I think it was a DNA exoneration. So they were intentionally doing the DNA, or is it something that kind of was a byproduct of doing DNA for something else? No, I think they were working on this case, oh, trying wow. to prove the innocence of the defendants who were sent to prison and died. Isn't that interesting that DNA can last 72 years? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, it reminds you of Jurassic Park. (laughs) That's the principle of Jurassic Park. You find this DNA. Anyway, the victims... um, these, this Groveland four, these four individuals, um, were victims of vigilante um, conduct and also understanding that it was the Jim Crow era. But one of them, uh, one of these defendants was shot by a posse. He was pursued by a vigilante posse and shot 400 times. Yeah. Another one, later, he was shot. Two of them were shot while trying to escape. One of those survived and was able to tell people what actually happened. It's it's a bizarre. Wow. I, I urge you all to look at the Groveland Four. Okay, and then I want November 18. Here's a case... Uh, that doesn't involve uh, an exoneration. Hopefully, it will sometime in the future. But I'm talking about Julius Jones in Oklahoma. Um, On November 18, he was scheduled to be executed at 4 o'clock, 4 o'clock p.m. He was scheduled to be executed Sometime after noon, I know it was during the noon hour, the governor um, commuted his sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, There's a large body of evidence that indicates Julius Jones's innocence. So they certainly, they continue to work on that. But anyway... um, and that's that's the one that I think Baker Mayfield was so vocal about too. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. The quarterback, yes. uh, Baker Mayfield, uh, was advocating uh, on behalf of Julius Jones, and yeah, he uh, he had a lot of support from well internationally. Yeah. He had support. That was really nice to see that issue go up so heavily in mainstream media. Absolutely. I felt like that that Absolutely. used to happen more often. I wanted to comment uh, one thing that intrigues me is why the governor waited till so less than before. 4 oh. hours. You got to know <sighs> that he wanted that drama. He wanted that grandstanding. You think he made his decision? Four hours before the execution, I doubt that. Um, but yeah, I I think he was doing a little grandstanding um, to wait that long and just hold uh, Julius Jones pre- prepared uh, for an injection. And we're talking about Oklahoma here. Oklahoma likes to kill people. Yeah, they do. They like to execute people, but they're not very good at it. They botch their execution. So, I don't know. I'm I'm not really fond of uh, Oklahoma. One of the things that intrigued me is the governor said he had reached his decision through, quote, prayerful consideration, unquote. Which means to me that he sought divine guidance. Isn't that what that means? That's how I would interpret that. He was seeking divine guidance in making this decision. Which, (laughs) did he really think 
that the reply to his prayer was going to be, kill the son of a bitch. Really? That, he really thought that was going to be one of the replies? I don't know. No. No, you never get that kind of reply from the God of my understanding. Well, and I think it's interesting going along with what you're saying. It's my understanding that the pardon and per- Pardon and Parole Board reviewed his case and also recommended a stay of execution in terms of his situation, too. That's true. So somebody that's specifically dealing with individuals in the criminal justice corrections field is looking at this saying, yeah, this is not right. Let's stop that. Okay. So with all my snarky comments, I thank the governor. I truly do thank you for saving the life of Julius Jones. And again, I hope that in the not too distant future, um, he will be exonerated. Okay, so that brings me to one that's much more closer to home. Big, big kudos to the Midwest Innocence Project. They, uh, they're out of Kansas City, and uh, they review their career. They have, oh, this is so, in my view, so great. They have dedicated themselves to this issue. They assist wrongly convicted inmates in obtaining an exoneration, and they are successful in doing so. November 23, again, November 23, Kevin Strickland was exonerated. Uh, This is in Missouri. He was convicted of a triple murder in 1979 in Missouri when he was of 18 years of age. His conviction was based solely on eyewitness testimony that was later recanted. There was no physical evidence tying uh, Mr. Strickland to the crime. It was just the eyewitness testimony. And with the help of Midwest Innocence Project, um, they were able to exonerate him. Then the Missouri Attorney General opposed his release Hmm. for political purposes, for political purposes. Uh, he he successfully delayed Mr. Strickland's release twice, notwithstanding that the prosecutor's office in the county of conviction supported Strickland's release. Everybody connected with the case supported Strickland's so, so release, but get- not the Missouri attorney general so how did he get it delayed he can enter he's the attorney general he's the chief yeah chief law enforcement officer of the state and he was able to get it delayed i don't know how but i wish you guys could hear eye rolls because i think that's the only thing that would be on this audio up to this point thank you i'm yeah i'm rolling my eyes we both are Thank you to Midwest Innocence Project. So that's the news that was in the last two weeks of November, and all of this was a backdrop to, or had for a backdrop, two high-profile criminal trials. Remember Kyle Rittenhouse? He was acquitted of all charges related to the shooting of rioters in Wisconsin, and then the trial of Almond Arbery was killed in Georgia. The circumstances of Arbery's death are, the similarities are uncanny when you look at the Arbery case and you look at Trayvon Martin. I thought, I think we all remember Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that case started a firestorm. Um, that was back in 2012. 
the Aubrey case just like it. And in that case, the three defendants uh, who were convicted of killing Arbery under those similar circumstances, they were convicted when in the uh, Trayvon Martin case they weren't. So, yeah, I think that's what I wanted to say. All this going on in the last two weeks of November and uh, headline news addressing the issue that Beth and I are so passionate about and the reason we have this podcast. So thanks for letting me rant and report the news. Well, I think it's very telling too, just in those past two weeks, there was, I think I counted four exonerations you just talked about. I mean, I think, well, there was more than that because the, the four that you were talking about, so that's four, five, six, seven, eight exonerations in the last two weeks. Am I counting right? Oh, if you count how many defendants. Yeah. Yeah, because there's multiple defendants in a couple of those cases. So. And that's just in the past two weeks what's came up in the news. I remember when we recorded our first introductory, um, brief introduction of this podcast, I mentioned our goal was to bring awareness to this population of wrongfully convicted. And the second thing was to impress upon you the frequency that that occurs. And that's why I wanted to talk about um, what it had what had been in the news. You, you've got to understand that this occurs frequently. Yes. Thank you again. Thank you for sharing that. So, Beth, are you ready to introduce our featured exoneree? I am. Please. So sometimes when I am thinking of things, I'll get off on some random topic and I like to backtrack in my mind just to see if I can backtrack how do I got how do I got that particular subject. So that's what I'm going to do for you now of how I got to this particular exoneree. You had mentioned Julius Jones. The week of his impending execution, I found myself quite frequently researching his case and his story and what was going on with it. And as part of that research, I stumbled across a study done by the Harvard Fair Punishment Project that talks about the five deadliest prosecutors in the United States. These five individuals account for one out of every seven people on death row. And keep in mind, this study was released in 2016. So you may be asking, what does that have to do with Julius Jones? Well, it just so happens that his prosecutor, Bob Cowboy Macy, is number two on that list. Bob Macy was the district attorney in Oklahoma County for 21 years. He's known for being the individual who has sent more people to death row than any other individual attorney in the United States. That's crazy. This must have been something that he felt was some sort of badge of honor because he kept a stack of baseball cards on his uh, desk at his office. And in those baseball cards was one of himself riding a horse. And on the back was his stats. And one of his stats was nation's leading death penalty prosecutor. He also had a tombstone poster, movie poster, prominently displayed in his office with the phrase justice is coming underneath it. Of those death penalty cases, that Bob Macy prosecuted, 33% of the time, prosecutorial misconduct was found. 33% of his death penalty cases had prosecutorial misconduct. So that study that I read that kind of fell down this rabbit hole for me indicated that Bob Macy himself, the, the cases that he tried produced 54 death sentences were handed out. Of those 54, almost half of them were reversed by courts, including three death row exonerations. Curtis McCarty, Clifford Henry Bowen, and Robert Lee Miller Jr. Keep in mind, this is the same district attorney, the same prosecutor that prosecuted Julius Jones. 
a lot of the misconduct in the cases dealt with his reliance on the chief chemist, the serologist, if you will, Joyce Gilchrist, which we'll come across later. So of those three other individuals on death row that were exonerated, I decided to talk about or do some research on Curtis McCarty. Just to warn you, this is not a feel-good story. Curtis was born in 1962. He was one of two children. He reports that his childhood had a very normal life, very happy. He did say he grew up poor, but his parents were extremely hardworking and set really good examples for him. This all started to change for Curtis when he was around 15 years old. It was at that point he started dabbling in drugs, which very fastly fell onto a head-first landing into drug addiction. This led him to drop out of school, and in his words, every opportunity he had to do the right thing, he automatically chose the opposite. Because of all these decisions, he very quickly alienated his loving family. He was alone. He was alone with his drug addiction, the people in that community that supported that drug addiction, and himself. At this time, he met Pamela Willis. Most of my research just indicates that they were casual acquaintances. Maybe she was somewhere on the outlier of this, of this group of friends that he had. But on December 10th, 1982, 18-year-old Pamela Willis, who was just so happened to be a daughter of a police officer, was found murdered in the Oklahoma City home that she was staying. She was found nude and had been stabbed with a kitchen knife and strangled with a rope. Curtis and 40 other young men were interviewed in this investigation. Curtis specifically, like I said, they were some sort of acquaintances with each other. There's nothing indicating it was anything else other than them being acquaintances. Curtis provided here samples to the investigators, and according to him, he took a polygraph and passed. Unbeknownst to Curtis, his hair sample was identified soon after providing it by that serologist I just mentioned, Joyce Gilchrist, and determined that the hairs were not a match to those found at the crime scene. Curtis was not made aware of this. He was interviewed several more times over the next three years. And in 1985, according to Curtis, the investigators heard a rumor that he was going around telling people he knew who killed Pamela. That caused the investigators to bring him in. He said this time it wasn't an invest it wasn't an invite to come talk to him. It was him them forcing him into the investigation room where he says he stayed for three days under investigation during this interrogation process. He didn't ever confess to it, but at the end of those days he was charged with capital murder. The first trial took place March 1986. For his part, the defense relied on two alibi witnesses for him. And the prosecutor relied primarily on the scientific evidence, the serologist, the Joyce Gilchrist. The two things that she testified to were the sperm located on the body that they recovered and hair analysis. Now I sent your puzzled look on your face because I just told you not very long ago that the hair was initially analyzed shortly after the crime and proven not to be a match. Well, just so happens that shortly before the trial, this serologist changed her findings and changed her notes, indicating that this could have been Curtis's hair at the crime scene. She testified that not only could it have been his hair, that he was in fact there at the crime scene. That's what she stated. She was, he was in fact there. The other evidence dealing with the sperm, we get into this DNA, excuse me, this is pre-DNA, so we get into the blood typing again. This is something that I, th I think we ran into in every single person we've talked about, isn't it? I think so. I think we do something with the uh, serologist in every case. Well, and I think it shows how flawed maybe this flawed this testimony is. So we go back. I know you're probably very tired of me hearing about the secretor, non-secretor thing. So I'm not going to go too much into it this time. I'm just going to say both Pamela and the assailant were type A secretors. The serologist testified that the sperm that they located on the body, she did not believe to be have mixed with Pamela's blood. 
Now that's important because if Pamela is a secretor and her blood mixes with the semen, it's going to have secretor cells in it that may not necessarily belong to the assailant. The serologist, therefore, I don't know where they get these statistics again. I don't know if they're accurate. I'm just telling, well, I can assure you that they're probably not accurate, but I'm just going to tell you the statistics she gave at trial was 26% of the population was type A blood. So she's narrowing it down to 26% because keep in mind, Curtis is type A secretor. So of that 26%, she immediately ruled out half because half have to be female of that population, which to me, that doesn't sound very scientific. We're not just automatically going to cut that number in half because half should be female. So whatever. So she presented that testimony. Curtis was found guilty and he was sentenced to death row. And let me interject here. This, what a story. Um, when I was earlier, when I was talking about the things that had happened recently that had been in the news, um, there's a United States Supreme Court decision, Brady versus Maryland. It was uh, decided in 1963. Yeah, so it's been around for a long time. It's certainly been around uh, when the case that we're talking about went to trial, as well as, um, but other cases that we've addressed on this podcast, uh, we get into the same thing where prosecutors violate the decision that was made in Brady versus Maryland. The Supreme Court said in that case that in the investigation of the case, if any evidence that is favorable to the defense must be turned over to the defense. And that, and that makes sense when you think about the resources the government has to investigate crimes compared to the resources that defense has, come on. So, yeah, if the, if the government finds evidence that points to someone else or is favorable, they've got to do that. They've got to turn it over to the defense. And that's called exculpatory evidence, Exculpatory correct? evidence. Okay. Evidence that helps the defense, helps the defendant. And uh, in this case, in Curtis's case, of course, they did not do that. And in other cases, you know, that Beth and I have researched that we've reported on and others that we have not yet reported on, almost all of them have these Brady violations um, where they suppress evidence. And when they find evidence that doesn't fit, we talked about this in the last broadcast, when they find evidence that doesn't fit into their tunnel vision of conviction, um, it's disregarded. They can't disregard it. They've got to give it to the defense. So, In this case, there was a report that says Curtis was not there. Right. That yeah. That that was that first analysis. Yeah. The crime committed in 1982. Shortly after he provided the sample, the serologist looked at it and said, "No, they're not a match." This is a written report that was clearly suppressed. um, Yeah, by the prosecution because they really wanted to hide that. And I'm telling you, that's that's not rare is what I'm telling you. Well, and I think I'll do you one better. The defense wasn't made aware of this report for almost two decades. So, and I, just to tag along with that, that article I told you about of the five deadliest prosecutors, there was a Harvard professor that did a summary of the data found in that study. And he, it was actually Ronald Sullivan. He's a Harvard law professor. And he said that the data provided in that study suggests that the, when it all costs mentality adopted by a small group of prosecutors has led to shockingly high rates of prosecutorial misconduct and wrongful convictions. So I think that tags along with what you're saying. It most definitely does. Okay. So we're at trial number one. I say trial number one because there are several. 
He's found guilty. He's convicted. Defense has no idea about that other initial analysis of the hair, which we don't necessarily have to get into, but hair analysis has proven to be very unreliable and faulty. Is that accurate? Would you say that's accurate? I, it is. It's, it's not very reliable. It's like bite marks. You yes. know, we peep that type of evidence is used, but or like DNA typing. <laughs> it doesn't quite rise to the DNA level. Or not DNA typing, excuse me, blood typing. Blood typing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Curtis sits on death row for two years before the Oklahoma Supreme Court overturned his conviction due to prosecutorial misconduct and improper forensic procedures. Huh. He's given a new trial. Those improper improper forensic procedures that they were talking about was specifically the serologist saying that he was there or he was definitely there at the crime scene because there's no way she could have known that just off the hair analysis. So he's given a second trial. Good, happy feelings, right? Yeah. Let's get it right this time. Yeah. 1989, the trial begins despite knowing the issues with the serologist, her testimony and everything else. They continue to use her in the second trial as their chief form of evidence against Curtis. And could this be the same prosecutor? It is. Cowboy Bob? It is. So instead of saying this time he was definitely there based on the hair analysis, she changes it to say this could be his hair. This is enough for the jury. They convict him a second time and for a second time order him to death row. He's sitting on death row. The case gets to the appellate court level this time. They confirm the conviction, which means they don't think anything was wrong with the trial, but they order that he receive a new sentencing hearing because they don't feel that the jurors received adequate directions during that part. So a new jury is seated They hear four days of evidence of testimony in 1996 for Curtis. And at the end of that, they again, for the third time, sentence him to death row. This process was draining for Curtis. He lost all hope. He would win appeals based on government misconduct. He would get the new trial, and then they would commit the same misconduct that they had in the first trial. And you've said several times, Beth, that they've sentenced him to death row. Three times. They sentenced him to death. Yes. Let's make it clear. Yes. We're talking death. Yes. And I, there's a lot of interesting research I found out there, testimony of Curtis talking about his time on death row and how isolated and depressed and alone he was. He had he was locked down 23 hours a day, very limited human contact, very limited contact with staff or his other fellow death row inmates. Uh, the very limited interactions they would have, he said, would be quelched when they would inevitably lose their appeals, appeals, and then they would be walked in front of his door, and he know he knew that they were going to the death chamber. So 19 years, he's sitting on death row. I mean, when you just think about that alone, an individual who clearly has some mental health issues based on his substance abuse issues is sitting isolated and alone in a small cell by himself for 23 hours a day. That, That would take a mental, I would say anybody would say that would be a mental toll on individuals. Like I said, he's very isolated. He's very alone. Um, one thing that does happen during this time period that he results as kind of a positive thing is he starts working on his intellect. Keep in mind, he dropped out of high school to his drug use when he was young. So he doesn't have a whole lot of education. He's quickly reading everything he can and develops a love for aphorisms. Do you know what this is? I had to look it up. No. What's that? What is that? Short, concise, general statements about life essentially like don't cry over spilt milk that kind of thing so one of them that sticks with him is a happy life is one without regret and one without loneliness this haunts him because all he's had in his life is regret and loneliness fortunate for curtis he wasn't the only one that was wronged by the serologist that serologist just so happened to falsify a report, a DNA report that had been prepared by the FBI. 
That's pretty brazen. You're changing a report that the FBI did. Well, wouldn't you know, the FBI became aware of this and they opened an investigation into Joyce. That's the serologist. The FBI came to Oklahoma City, went to the police department, and according to Curtis, started talking to the officers at the police department. One of them provided the FBI with a list of several names, including Curtis's, indicating that in these particular cases, evidence had been falsified and that this wasn't a standalone issue. This all happened in 2000. Curtis was convicted in 1986, so we've already got some decades under our belt with this one. So in 2000, pending the FBI investigation, the state of Oklahoma opens their own investigation into this serologist. And so doing, they call into question every single trial that she's testified or provided evidence to, which to my knowledge is over a thousand. This, this was one of their chief witnesses. As part of that process, the defense became aware of that second hair analysis report, the one that said it was not Curtis. That was, that was the first hair Correct. analysis report. Correct. The other one, the one that they chose not to use or tell anybody about. Right. So when the defense interviewed the serologist about it, she indicated that the hair sample would be good enough quality to do DNA on. When she was asked to produce the hair sample, it was lost or destroyed, destroyed according to her. So that's a dead end. A couple years later, Curtis's attorneys were able to get DNA testing done on the sperm located on the body, the deceased body. The DNA testing came back, not Curtis's DNA. That next year, the Innocence Project got involved with Curtis's case, which is a big deal because these attorneys are more experienced in post-conviction relief cases. Within a couple of years, 2005 to be exact, a new trial was awarded to Curtis based on his new attorneys and the DNA evidence that was found, that sperm DNA analysis. And a couple years later, right prior to his third trial, the defense was able to get new DNA testing done of fingernail scrapings of Pamela. The idea of that when Pamela was being attacked, she was fighting, she scratched the assailant, the assailant's skin nails are under her fingertips, so therefore the scrapings are going to have the DNA of the assailant. Those uh, scrapings were analyzed and the DNA was also not Curtis's. Based on this even more DNA analysis results, his defense presented a motion to the judge to dismiss all charges against Curtis, which as of May 11th, 2007, was granted. Woohoo. Yes, we say woohoo. Curtis is very vocal that there was nothing for him to celebrate. He was not happy about this. He said he was full of anger and resentment. He was even cursing out his own attorneys, the defense his defense, the innocence project, everybody, he was angry. He was mad. And I think this goes along to him spending 19 years on death row where he is just waiting his impending death without having any options or any kind of relief that he can personally do himself against it. The mental toll that took on him. So like I said, March 11, 2007, the motion was granted to dismiss all charges. The DA did not appeal that decision, which I think is telling. In total, he was incarcerated for 22 years, 19 of which were on death row. He was the 15th person nationwide and the third in Oklahoma to be exonerated by DNA testing after serving time on death row. Now, that's not to say the 15th and third to be exonerated. That's the 15th and third on death row to be exonerated. After he was released, Curtis talked about how he didn't know we as humans were capable of that type of suffering and that type of darkness to know that you're going to die and not being able to do anything about it. Mentally, he was not in a good place. He said that the one positive that came out of that situation was getting to hug his mom for the first time in 22 years. Think about that. Not being able to hug, not just your mom, anybody in 22 years. He said he forgot how comforting human touch could be because when you're in lockdown 23 hours a day, you're not having physical interactions with anybody. So he's released. He goes back to his parents' house 
where he spends the next nine months in his parents' basement, just enjoying time with his parents. Now, to you and I, that would seem uh, not normal. But you got to keep in mind, this man has been by himself 23 hours a day for the past 19 years. Just being in his parents' basement is a big shift from being alone in the small room by himself. But he's still isolated. Yes. And go back to that quote about a happy life that he said is always with him, about a happy life is one without loneliness and one without regret. He's still suffering from that. So I said that the Innocence Project became involved with that case. One of the wonderful things with the Innocence Project is they have a program for people post-exoneration for five years that they are receiving psychological, physical, mental health help, whatever they can do to help them find their place in society after being released. So his contact with the Innocence Project about nine months after his release called him and said, hey, you know what? I think it would be a really good idea for you if you went to Nebraska and testified in front of the Judiciary Committee about a bill they're considering uh, to end the death penalty. Curtis was not having it. He didn't want to be around people. He was still very, very angry, very resentful. He said no, absolutely not. In fact, he said that after his release, his attorneys were so careful to make sure there was no microphones in front of him because of how angry and resentful he was. So this is the first time they approached him about anything like this. So he said no. And from the way I understand it, maybe in a lot more words than that, if you know what I mean. The representative then contacted his mom. Keep in mind, he's staying with his mom and dad. And three days later, he was on a plane to Lincoln, Nebraska to testify in front of the Judiciary Committee. And he was not happy about it. This is not something he wanted. He did not see the point of it. Not having it. Well, thank you, mom and dad. No joke. So he gets to Lincoln, Nebraska. He meets the person that's going to take him to the Capitol. They take him to the Capitol. And the very first person he's introduced to just so happens to later down the line be his girlfriend. And he talks about coming into contact with somebody that he's interested in, forced him to come to the realization that he's not dying, that he's alive, and he needs to do something about it. I think that's a powerful statement. Can you imagine going through your life just waiting to die? I mean, usually when you hear about that kind of stuff, it's people accepting the mortality that they are going to die, not accepting the fact that they're going to live. That had to have been a big shift for him. So he ended up filing a federal lawsuit against the state of Oklahoma for reparations for his time while he was incarcerated. It was dismissed. Um, he never received any kind of financial anything from the state of Oklahoma. In fact, they still very much consider him somehow a suspect or involved with the crime. He was unable to find any type of work. Keep in mind, he doesn't have a high school education he has to explain for these 23 missing years of his work history. And we've already kind of talked about where his mental health at. Just from what I've told you, you can get the idea that maybe he's not in the best place right now. He ends up making ends meet by doing speaking engagements at universities and churches. That provides him enough to get by, but he doesn't ever have his own car. He doesn't have a nice place to live. And in fact, later down the line, it it's quite apparent that he's living a very transient lifestyle. Unfortunately for Curtis in 2016, he turned back to his old lifestyle and was arrested for methamphetamine charges. He was convicted and served May 2018 to de December 2019 in the Oklahoma state prison for those conviction and is currently on probation. There was never anybody identified as the perpetrator of the crime. And in fact, part of the misconduct that was done by the serologist in the district attorney's office, the evidence that was collected from the deceased was open, seals were removed, it was out of its packaging, so it'll never be admissible in a court of law again. So even if they did have somebody, they wouldn't be able to use that DNA evidence because the line of custody has been broken on it. So we had talked about uh, Jimmy Gardner and Eddie Lowry and how positive and wonderful their lives are now, I think they are probably the outliers on this situation. I feel like most people that spend 19 years on death row aren't coming out to Butterfly and Roses. 
I feel that the mental health issues that are probably resulting from that type of isolation is something that he may never get over. And unfortunately, this is the sad reality of a lot of wrongful convictions. The district attorney's office, everybody involved in the prosecuting of him, never declared him innocent. In fact, that study that that uh, I told you about initially with Bob Macy, the DA, they dispute him being listed as one of the exonerees because they don't say he was exonerated. They just decline further prosecution with him. He was never recouped any kind of mental or financial anything for the loss of time, for the loss of his life that he suffered. And while I really, really want to put a big happy bow on this and deliver this as a positive It's just not. There's no other way of saying it. This is just the sad reality of wrongful convictions. Not everybody's a Jimmy Gardner or an Eddie Lowry. On that note, to end it somewhat happy, I was so, so very fortunate to have the opportunity to make contact with Eddie Lowry. And the things I said about him in our previous episode I'm just going to, I mean, it's times 10, the amount of gratitude and kindness and compassion that this man has is just beyond me. Um, He's truly somebody that should be admired. Somebody that could experience this and come out a positive person is just amazing to me. It's an amazing triumph of the human spirit. Um, I did ask him about whether he received relief from his dishonorable discharge from the military. And he was so gracious to answer me. He actually, I said, actually, that's one of my dad's pet peeves. I could see his eyes rolling. He showed me a TikTok he made for the Innocence Project's um, TikTok page on Veterans Day, talking about how with the help of the Innocence Project, he was granted and upgraded his status to just discharged, opposed to dishonorably discharged. And one last thing, I'm a little bit distracted during this recording because right as we are pressing record, I received a text message that my grandson was born. So Walter Robert White, the fourth, your Gigi loves you. Thank you, Beth. Uh, And congratulations on the birth of your grandchild. Thank you. But thank you for this story. Um, Yeah, it's not a... yeah, what you said at the onset, this isn't a feel-good story. Um, well, and to be, beca- honest, be honest with you, I really struggled if this is one that I should tell. But the be- fact of the matter, it doesn't always wrap up like we want it to. Yeah, it, but it's an example where the wrongful conviction took this guy's life. Oh, for sure. And the exoneration did not give it back. It It had been taken... And there wasn't any way to give it back. And, uh, and yeah, I, it's it's so sad. It's very sad. I will say there was a period of years where he was a very big advocate for the abolishment of the capital punishment. And he did many talks when all around the world. I, it seemed to be that he was thriving in that situation. And one of the things that he constantly would talk about during these talks is about the amount of resources that are wasted on death penalty cases, how much more beneficial they could be if you put them on the front end to try and circumvent those crimes from ever happening in the first place, the intervention in the drug cases and all of that sort. So, Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that footnote. One thing I want to comment on is uh, Curtis's story. Um, had one thing that is so common that it seems to run through all of these exoneration cases. And that is when there is a DNA exoneration, as in Curtis, uh, it's, they determine it's not him. It's, it's not him. The DNA says it's not him. So, you would, and the prosecution won't dismiss the case. You still have Jimmy Gardner They're, too. Yes, that's what I'm saying. That the they grant him a new trial. Yeah, that's the outcome, and the prosecutor still pursues the case, and uh, it's. And I think in this case, they never accepted the exoneration. Yeah. 
No, they they believe the case was solved and it was curdless. But that's same thing with the, and that's I think, not true. And I think another key point to mention is when they're not dismissing these charges that they're scheduling a new trial. During that entire time frame, they are trying to get these individuals to plead to something else. It's not like, oh, we're just going to wait for a trial. No, they're trying to get them to cop out on any other crime that they can. And that's part of that situation where we talked about Bob Macy's conviction rate and how half of them had been reversed. That doesn't mean half of them were exonerated. That means half of them pled to crimes less than what they were, probably because they were so afraid to go back on death row. What an excellent point. Thank you. Yes, that trying to get them to plead to something they're always doing that. Mm-hmm. They're always looking for a conviction. Mm-hmm. They want a conviction. Um, that's an excellent point. You know, we won't try you again if you plead to something. And I remember Jimmy Gardner specifically, they tried that with him. And not only did they offer him a plea to something less, but it would have been time served. And he still declined. That's like giving them some sort of, what, hand motion? Yeah. Yeah, some sort of signal with your fingers? Yeah. And I guess I I do want to say one more thing. I want to tie up that Joyce Gilchrist, the serologist, real quick. Um, She was under investigation in 2000 by the FBI. She was fired that same year. She then filed a wrongful termination suit for $20.1 million, alleging that she was fired because she reported sexual misconduct by her supervisor. So I'm not even sure if she was fired due to all the, I mean, we're not even outright lies in her reports. We're not going to say like mistakes because some of these, she just went back and changed the information that would fit the, or the prosecution's outline. So she obviously, she did not win that wrongful termination shoot. She moved to Houston and then became involved with some sort of candle company before she passed away. She never admitted any wrongdoing in any of the cases. Um, I think, I don't want to say it off the top of my head and get it wrong, but there's been multiple people exonerated due to her faulty uh, testimony and serology reports. Specifically, apparently she was very big with the hair analysis, which we talked about um, is not accurate. So she was never prosecuted though for anything. She did undergo fraud charges, a fraud investigation, but she was never prosecuted. And then that Bob Macy, the prosecutor stepped down from office and air quote retired. And he has since passed away. They both passed away. All right. So there's that. Is that it? That's it. I think that's it. So if anybody has any questions, concerns, comments, thoughts on future episodes, please reach out to us on Facebook at Cleared Podcast or Instagram at Cleared Pod. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, thank you. Thanks for listening. Wait for our next one. Mm -hmm.